Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Well, we have another special show for you today. The show is called Commercial Real Estate Vectors for 2020. Please welcome my guest. It's Casey Conway, and uh, Casey is the a senior economist for CCIM, and he's joining us here in Studio One. Casey, thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Michael. Happy uh, Thanksgiving to everybody. <laughs> yes. And I, if you will, kind of start us off with the cycle. I mean, everybody's really concerned about the cycle being long in the tooth, and it seems like people starting to get nervous. Should we be thinking about cycles that much? No, I think it's well overplayed. I'm yeah. actually in the camp that no recession in 2020. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of look at eight key metrics, a broad base of things from GDP and employment down to small business optimism and <clears throat> how commercial real estate's performing. I don't, I don't see any signs of, of, of pullback. The fundamentals are solid, lots of liquidity in the system. Um, I, I just don't see it. You know, I guess it's that thing that, you know, whenever you get 124 months into a longest recovery, you start worrying about it's going to end. But uh, we're performing really where we should have performed in the first third of this recovery, but didn't. And it uh, shows what a little deregulation and a little fluid, fluid capital and system will do for the economy. So what are the indicators that are making some, by, uh, some people a little more nervous? Is it uh, GDP expectations moving forward? Yeah, I, th I think it's some of that. I think it's, you know, wow, we're not producing 200,000 jobs a month anymore, but when you're at 35 3.6% unemployment, you don't have that many to pull into the labor pool. Um, I think you have to look at the numbers relative to where we are, and I think people aren't paying enough attention to corporate earnings. I spent a lot of time pouring over the corporate earnings, and so if you take out what I call the self-inflicted 20, so the Boeings and the Under Armors, you know, those companies that have done something internal to themselves to shoot themselves in the foot and pull it out, these, the third quarter, again, was very strong. So if you go back to you know, four quarters ago when we implemented the tariffs, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, the world's gonna end, and each of the past four quarters, we've beat expectations, and we've done it again, and the forward guidance from companies are telling us, look, at, we're dealing with tariffs, we're redoing supply chain, we're finding efficiencies, the consumer's healthy and strong, small business is happy, and so I really look to those corporate earnings. They're telling us the next six months, and I don't see them telling us anything's wrong. So the glass is half full then? So I hate that analogy. <laughs> it's almost as bad as the baseball, what, what inning we're in. Yeah. So I, I like, you know, the, let's pay attention to the pitcher in the pitcher. So it's kind of like, you know, when you're drinking margaritas or you're drinking beer, who cares whether your beer is half full or half empty? Where is the keg? Where is the rest <laughs> of the pitcher? And the pitcher influences, you know, the things that are really controlling corporate, uh, mm -hmm. the liquidity, the capital in the system, they're all telling us there's lots of margaritas up here to pour. We're no, no shortage. <laughs> what do you say to the people that are concerned about trade wars and tariffs and, and the election of 2020? Yeah, so I would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about one of those things, the elections. I, mean, I really am. You look at what's happening in Washington and how we're tearing this country apart. So I tell people, don't worry about a recession next year. Worry about state secession after the election. So I really worry that this thing is just getting so polarized and we're ripping things apart. The politics is what's ripping our economy apart. Look mm -hmm. at the time that we're wasting in Washington, D.C. right now. Instead of focusing on things like getting USMCA passed for, for real tariff and trade issues, um, they're just not working on the fundamental things that we need to. But uh, there's actually a term out there that's bantering around 
in terms of our own form of Brexit in 2021, and it's called Flexit. It's where Florida and Texas say, hey, we vacuumed everything we need out of California and the Northeast, and we're leaving. So um, I tell Murray more about state secession and the politics than the fundamentals of the economy. The fundamentals of the economy are very good. Yeah. What about banks? Uh, are banks going to be doing as much commercial real estate lending in 2020 as they have? What do you see for, for the uh, health of the banks? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, you know, we'll do the on one hand, on the other hand. So on one hand, the FDIC just had their report come out on the health of our FDIC insured banks. It's the best that they've been post the financial crisis. They're really solid in terms of earnings. They don't have big credit problems. So the health of the banks is really good right now. On the other hand, though, banks have enjoyed you know, grazing on commercial real estate quite a bit. So we now are back to having the largest concentration of real estate lending in the banks than even before 2008 and 9. So we've got $4.3 trillion of total commercial real estate debt and about 55% of that's in the bank. So are the regulators gonna to start to pull it back and put the reins on them or are they gonna let it go? Mm -hmm. And if they do pull the reins back a little bit, the regulators do on the banks, uh, is there plenty of other debt sources that should help us in 2020? Absolutely, and yeah. that's why I keep, you look at all the different sources out there. I look at whether it's CMBS, you know, they only do about 80 billion this year. We've got record low um, delinquency in CMBS, really good performance. Uh, if you look at the life companies, they're flush with cash. They're gonna have lots of money to put to work in the early part of the year. So, you know, they've been playing golf. They always play golf at the end of the year because they put all their money to work. <laughs> so they get new money in the first part of the year. So for the first six months, they've got a lot. And foreign capital, we're probably gonna set a record this year for foreign capital flows, both debt and equity. I was just up at the private equity international conferences and they're all rich with, rich with cash. So there's no shortage of capital out there. And, you know, when you look at the rest of the world, you got 14 trillion of negative yielding bonds in the rest of the world. So when you go to Europe or Japan, they'll say, uh, you've got to pay us for us to take your money. <laughs> you know, that doesn't make very much sense. Mm -hmm. And you look over here and we're still paying, a, you know, 150 to 200 basis points on our, on our debt, two mm -hmm. year and 10 years. Uh, we had a growing economy. We got appreciating commercial real estate. Where do you put your capital work? Mm -hmm. And that's what's really happening is we're seeing this flow of capital come in because we are growth and we do pay a yield on our, on our dividend. And I think that's really why the Fed is back to cutting interest rates. It's not so much that they're worried about full employment or price stability. They're worried about this quantitative easing nightmare in the rest of the world where it's attracting all that capital here. And maybe we've got to go to zero to neutralize it. So I don't think they're done. So your expectations for interest rates are that they might cut some more? I think the Fed's gonna to have to cut more next year. And it's not because of our economy, it's because of this imbalance in capital flow. Because all this capital coming in from the rest of the world is creating these asset bubbles. The stock market at record levels, real estate going up in value. This is all that foreign capital flow in here. And I think they wanna pinprick that asset appreciation. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk about some of the property types out there uh, moving forward. And, and if we will, let's start with, with housing uh, is, you know, cause that's usually a big part of the economy. It seems like in past decades, everybody looked at housing. Uh, what do you expect moving forward there? Yeah. So, you know, everybody's been trying to, you know, downplay housing and say it's in recession. And, you know, I, I've said for well over a year, mm -hmm. home builders just aren't building unprofitable homes. Mm -hmm. It's hard to build under 300,000. Mm -hmm. So with the lower interest rates, it's helping that quite a bit. Um, but I look at uh, the, the, those that can't afford to buy a home have stayed or moved into the multifamily as they've gotten employees. So multifamily is very healthy. We're still in, you know, depending on the market, four to six percent um, vacancy rate numbers. Rents are still going up. 
Um, so I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there. We're, we'll we'll build what's profitable, and I think mm -hmm. the you look at the public builders again on their earnings reports, phenomenal numbers. You know, they're known how to build it very profitably. So mm -hmm. the big challenge we have in this country, particularly in the big markets, is where we where do we have affordable housing? Mm -hmm. And if you don't solve that problem, then I think you've uh, you, you you're going to retard your economic development. But mm -hmm. and we're finding lots of solutions here in Atlanta. You know, we've got we're building um, new subdivisions where all the homes are for rent. You know, we got mobile home communities popping up. In fact, the top performing commercial property type for the second year in a row is manufactured home communities. Mm -hmm. It's beating industrial by more than twofold. Yeah. And why do you think is the main reason uh, for that? So I think it really is, again, the affordability is being pushed out. If we can't build a new inventory mm -hmm. and you can't buy the new home, you really get pushed out. If the rents go up too much in the multifamily, you go down the next tier. Mm -hmm. Next tier opportunity is, is uh, manufactured housing. And the other piece is kind of this not in my backyard. We're not willing to really experiment with things like tiny home subdivisions, manufactured housing. You know, we've, we've done it here in Atlanta and they've done it in other parts of the country. Um, you know, I keep a running list each year of the things I thought I'd never hear. And one of them I recently did on talking about housing was I saw one called um, Tiny House in Dallas. Now that's an oxymoron, <laughs> Tiny House in Dallas. That's like a small suburban. And even Dallas is starting to play with, you know, these infill pieces. What do we do with them? They're leftover. Maybe that's a way to get affordable. Uh, Washington, D.C. has experimented very successfully with um, these accessory dwellings where they go into high-end older neighborhoods and they buy up the garages and the alleys and they convert those to affordable housing. So mm -hmm. I think we're at, we're at a, a point where we could see some pretty creative solutions. Yeah, and I think home values have, have done well for most people, right? And I think if your 401k has done well and your home value's done well, and maybe you do have consumer confidence, what do you expect moving forward for, for holiday sales related to, to consumer confidence? And, and that impact on, on, on the economy and then on retail, you know, moving forward into 2020. Yeah, so get you, and you look at the retailers, look at Walmart, look at Target, look at all the retailers that are reporting. There's misses by the apparel folks. They're having a hard time because um, more of us are going online than going into the stores. But I, I think we're going to see another year of 3% plus over year-over-year -year growth in sales. If I look at the package companies like FedEx and UPS, they're telling us, man, we're geared up for another record year. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the growth in online retail, look at the growth in online groceries, you look at cars and autos, and we're, we're migrating everything to an online platform, and uh, the, it, there's more efficiencies in that, and the consumer's adopting it, so, and I think we're seeing some creative things in retail. It's not mm -hmm. death retail, it's kind of small as a new big, mm -hmm. so retail's not building as big as stuff, the big is the warehouse, and the small is still the showroom, even Amazon's opening stores. Um, a lot of the retail's being adaptively repurposed, so, you know, look at these Toys R Us or closed stores, and we have a great example here in Atlanta right now with um, near Emory University, one of our older malls, North Lake Mall. Sears is closed and all the old department stores, and the university's moving in, and they're putting work in one of the department stores and expanding, and that's revitalizing a lot of the smaller and the services and restaurants and other type stuff around it. So I think, it, you know, retail's evolving. We just wrote a paper on it, retail evolution. It's not apocalypse. Get rid of that term. Evolution. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some retailers that are kind of maybe surprisingly opening stores, but there's still some uh, closures that you expect? Yeah, so we're running this year, we'll end up closing probably close to 10,000 stores. It'll be a record. Mm -hmm. But the headlines never capture, we're, we're probably open over 4,000. Mm -hmm. And some of the, one of the really interesting ones, interesting you ask that question, is Levi's. Mm -hmm. So Levi Strauss, your jean company, 
um, they relied on a wholesale channel. They primarily distributed their jeans through department stores. With all the department stores closing, Levi said, why aren't our jeans selling? And it's not because they weren't a good product, it's just they didn't have an outlet. So Levi's is actually gonna open over 100 stores this next year. Um, Gap and Old Navy, so even Gap overall, its stock is down. The Old Navy piece is going quite well. Old Navy's announced they wanna open over 800 stores over the next two, uh, next two years. So not all retail is dead, it's just how do they evolve with logistics and the e-commerce platform, and what, what we're buying and consuming is different. And how about your uh, daughter's favorite store? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to break the news to my, to my two millennial daughters that um, they're, one of their favorite stores, Forever 21, is not looking so good. So I, I track what the debt levels are, because most of the retail closings and bankruptcies that we've had have been because of over leverage. So I encourage people to really look at the financial condition of those retailers mm -hmm. and their debt levels. And Forever 21 is one of the highest levels. So I'm actually okay with it because while the clothes really look good, my daughters look good in Forever 21 clothing, um, when they come home from college and they do their laundry, well, the first thing is I don't get access to the washer and dryer until about midnight. <laughs> and then when I do get access, the dryer is full. They forget to empty their dryer. They went to bed and waiting for dad to do it. And when I open it up and I get the clothes out, and then I go to open the dryer lint vent, you know, make sure it's clear, and there's like two inches of lint in there. Most of the clothes from Forever 21 end up in the lint vent after about three washings. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hopeful that maybe they'll get a better, better brand of clothing. There you go. <laughs> and then when you think about retail, uh, like you said, there's some changes on some of the retail being used for, for industrial, right, for distribution, uh, for education. Uh, and as you mentioned, for office. And then retail is uh, sometimes going into some locations where we might not thought of uh, retail before, right? Yeah, like, you're exactly right. So mm -hmm. it's, that's why I say the evolution. So mm -hmm. the biggest one I'm very bullish about that we talked about in this new retail evolution paper with CCIM Institute um, in the University of Alabama is it going into hotel. Mm -hmm. So hospitality, I think, is gonna be the new retail showroom. So what, what hospitality gets out of it is they now have a retailer come in and they fixture the place, they run the operations of the retail, and they get a slice of the revenue. They might get 10 to 15% of it. What the retailer gets is much lower occupancy costs, and they get closer to that customer. So one of good examples is restoration hardware. Restoration hardware is going into museums and hotels, and so you might be sitting in the lobby there, and the hotel didn't have to pay for that furniture and fixtures, but they're all restoration hardware stuff. So you say, wow, this is a comfortable chair. I wonder who made that. Well, there's a QSR code, and you can scan mm -hmm. it and order it from Restoration Hardware. So I think we're going to find retail and hospitality in a big way, um, mm -hmm. and that's going to help hotels and retailers. And we're also seeing it go into medical, hospital campuses, medical campuses. you got grandma and grandpa that have either got to take the grandkids for the day for outpatient and got to stay with them, or vice versa, and they want a McDonald's or a Disney store or something in there, so that's evolving. Um, so lots of places where retail's going in that we didn't think about them before. And the retailers are developing their loyalty programs for the first time. And they're doing what the airlines did decades ago. They're partnering up with the hotels. Mm -hmm. So who knows, your next day on a business trip at a Marriott may get you some points at your kid's favorite store or my daughter's Forever 21 <laughs> while they're still open. <laughs> there you go. It's interesting to see how Sticks and Bricks retail is, is really powering their business with the online. You know, I was uh, shopping for a car the other day and you know, go in there and, and I put, I scan the QR code, all of a sudden I've got every detail on this car, every detail I could want. So you can really just kind of walk around and 
point it. All right, I got the details. It's a lot better than a sales guy. You know, it's uh, oh, yeah. a lot more powerful when you have more information to make a decision. And you don't have to walk around some, uh, you know, 20 acres of land to find the inventory and hope it's there. You know, kind of right. like finding that Levi's pair of jeans. You can find exactly what you want and Carvana or TrueCar will have it at, at your door there you go. tomorrow morning. There you go. Well, I'm going to ask you about the future of the industrial market um, and the office market and some of the other factors that could impact commercial real estate and our economy moving forward. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by commercialagentsuccess.com. Check it out. It is incredible training for commercial real estate agents. Well, today we're talking about commercial real estate vectors for 20. 20. We have Casey Conway here with us in Studio One. He's a senior economist for CCIM. And uh, before we uh, took the break, we talked about retail. And one of the, the, the property types that seems to be going through some changes as well as, as retail is, is the office sector, right? We have this big, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, from, from the... Cluster. <laughs> yeah, from WeWork. Uh, but what do you expect for office market moving forward? Yeah, so I'm, I'm still uh, cautiously optimistic. I don't think that the demise of WeWork is the end of either the co-working concept or office. Uh, there'll be a little bit of space to digest in New York and maybe Atlanta and definitely London. But th keep in mind, most of that WeWork converted space, someone spent a lot of capital to convert that to great, creative, open office space stuff. So from a capital standpoint, it's, it's in pretty good shape. So those landowners or those building owners with those, that space, I think, are in pretty good shape. The co-working concept's not dead. This has been evolving for quite a long time. Things like lease accounting are driving it, forcing companies to really work on their efficiency ratios and not have long-term leases. And so I don't think it's dead at all. It doesn't decimate any one market here in the mm -hmm. United States, you know, maybe a little bit in New York, but the rest of us are in good shape. And you know, companies and industries, especially the financial services industries, they need this co-working concept to work. So yeah. I don't think it's dead at all. Yeah. Well, what could community leaders, um, what should they think about to kind of keep their uh, their communities vibrant. I mean, it's not just attracting new office tenants, is it? It's not. Boy, and I tell you, you're right on, Michael. I tell you, I grew up in Colorado, for those of you who don't know me, and I was known to have an occasional Coors beer along the way. <laughs> that pure Rocky Mountain spewing water, right? Brush my teeth with it occasionally on a camping or ski trip. The beer or the water? The, you know, the, yeah, the, the pasteurized <laughs> kind. And so, I don't know if many of you read, but recently that Coors is going to move its headquarters from Colorado to Illinois. And I'm just fell out of my chair, never thought I'd, I'd hear that in my life. 
but it really was a wake-up call. We saw it here in Atlanta um, earlier this year when SunTrust Bank announced its merger with BB&T and that headquarters, the bank that underwrote Coca-Cola, <laughs> has a little baseball field named after itself. Um, they're moving to North Carolina. And it's a wake-up call that in economic, our economic development leaders and our politically elected leaders, we need to pay as much attention to economic retention of what got us here in each of our cities as we do trying to lure new tech companies that still haven't made a profit yet. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll go with those economic retention. So economic retention attention is an important thing for our economic leaders right now. Yeah, I mean, I think you sometimes could take it for granted. You know, they're, they're big and they're powerful and, and they're in your community. But uh, uh, if they leave, you're, you're, you're going you're to hear about it. And it's, in commercial real estate, you know, we all think about it in a big way because we're thinking about it as re retaining tenants in all of our buildings all the time, right? right. We know it costs, turnover costs us. Take care of the tenants and just take care of the, the communities, just taking care of the businesses themselves. Well, what about industrial moving forward? I mean, is it going to just continue on this just rapid growth and rapid pace of improvement? Absolutely. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I didn't have a strong opinion there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, industrial is going to be on a growth mode for years right. to come. We're at only 10% of total retail sales that have gone into e-commerce. Uh, our forecast in our recent paper, Retail Evolution, and our logistics paper earlier this year uh, forecast that we're going to be at 20% retail sales online by 2025. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty pretty fast. And so the, the warehouse is the new department store. Mm -hmm. And so we may go to physical retail to see a showroom or to do pickup or get deliveries, but the bulk of that inventory is gonna be in the big e-commerce warehouse. And that's not slowing down at all. We have about three, we have a record 300 million square feet under development right now. Mm -hmm. And CBRE tells us that um, we have a deficit of about 170 million square feet per year for the last five years. So we're looking at well over a half billion square feet that we are behind on building. And when you look at this growth pace, I don't see it slowing down at all. And we've got to figure out last mile. So most of this stuff is first mile mm -hmm. <laughs> from the online warehouse and in the online order, well, how do we do the last mile? So a lot of these older, small warehouses, you know, where is Carvana and True Car sticking the cars that aren't in the acres of lots that go in the car vending machine? Um, you know, and you know, look at Amazon. They've been buying Toys R Us stores to help do last mile fulfillment. So I think we have a long way to go. Yeah, and to get closer into that last mile, we're seeing some changes in some of these uh, industrial buildings, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, everything goes back to the future. <laughs> back to the so future. Uh, Sears and Montgomery Wards in the 1930s and 40s pioneered vertical distribution. So some of you have an old Sears vertical distribution facility that might be repurposed. We have one here in Atlanta, Pond City Market. If you're in Memphis, they have Crosstown Project uh, is involved in both those deals. And so we are now building warehousing vertical. And there's two reasons that are driving that. The first is the availability of land. So traditionally, it's taken a land to building ratio of three or four to one. Now try seven to one. Because with the e-commerce, the double tandem trucks, the need for more truck pad parking, all of that is increasing. And so it, today, when you build a modern building, it's uh, you got to have a seven to one land to building ratio. And that's just not feasible in place high dense markets like a New York or Miami or Los Angeles. So what we've actually seen is we're seeing a new generation with their multi-story, uh, about you know 300 to 500,000 square feet per level vertical warehouses. And they have truck ramps that go up either side and all the pad parking underneath. And uh, so there's one going up in Brooklyn right now that Goldman Equity was involved with. There's one in Seattle. And uh, I think these work very, very well in cities. You can come down to cities with, you know, two to five million in population mm -hmm. where you need it close in. The only problem I see so far in the model 
is Amazon is getting the, uh, the lease on the upper floor, and I just wonder if they're getting that so they can spy on all the other retailers <laughs> below and steal their inventory and ship it out the other ramp door. But we're going vertical in the yeah. warehouse. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and the industrial space is, you know, when you think about last mile, some people think about, well, is, and you say a small building, that's not a 10,000 square foot building or 20,000 square foot. That's still, what, a quarter of a million square foot building that's needed, even if it's close to the city, right? It can be, and it can get down into the, you know, 40 to under 100,000 square feet. We have a, a good colleague here in Atlanta, <clears throat> Sim Dowdy with King Industrial, and their bread and butter is on working with these smaller, older buildings. And so you have a lot of retailers, like look at a Levi's. Mm -hmm. Levi's might not need a quarter million square feet mm -hmm. in different tertiary markets. They might only need a 25 to 40,000 square foot space, mm -hmm. and they can still deliver it into high-end stores and say Bucket here in Atlanta or Cherry Creek Shopping Center in Denver or Scottsdale Mall or something in, in, in Phoenix. So I think the some of the smaller apparel and I think some of the higher end type stuff absolutely can work very well in those smaller, mm -hmm. also the food. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the food delivery, I think we're gonna see uh, some of these closed drugstores become fulfillment centers. We're already seeing Kroger start to partner with Walgreens. And uh, so imagine, this is how crazy things get in Back to the Future. So we took pharmacy out of drugstores 20 years ago and we put it in the grocery stores. Mm -hmm. Now we're taking grocery out of the grocery stores and we're putting it in the drugstores. I mean, I don't know what comes next. Yeah. I oh, guess, it's in the hotel. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have the fountains back in the drugstores where you can get a milkshake, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and as we try to look forward to 2020 and beyond, uh, are one of the things that we need to think about when we're looking at, at real estate and the economy and logistics is uh, the ports and their growth. It absolutely is critical. So. Mm -hmm. I tell people frequently, whether they're an inland distribution market, like say an Atlanta or a Dallas or uh, you know um, uh, Phoenix or mm -hmm. whatnot, is you need to understand your connectivity to a port. What is your connectivity? If you don't have one and you don't have the rail connectivity, you probably are not going to be a, an important inland market distribution market, and you're and you're not going to participate in as much of the logistics. So, mm -hmm. the good news we hear about all the tariffs and it's slowing economic growth. You know, when I look at the port activity, particularly in our region of the country. I'll sit there with Georgia, record-breaking numbers, broke four million containers this year. Charleston, South Carolina, fastest growing terminal port, another record year in performance. And each of them are building these inland port models where they get the stuff on rail from the port and they get it quickly inland. Uh, even if you go down to Florida, Miami's having a record year. Come around the Gulf Coast, you know, Mobile, Houston, uh, Port Freeport, they're all growing. So these ports are very important. They're, they're kind of like the heart. And what goes from the heart are all the arteries and the veins, and we need a good vital heart, and those ports are the heart of our economic, yeah. especially in logistics. And you mentioned on these industrial buildings that uh, you need more uh, area for the park the trucks, but in some cases you don't need a coffee shop for the people, for the drivers, right? <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> autonomous trucking, it's, yeah. it's here. Those of us that thought it's many years away mm -hmm. might be surprised that Florida became the first state this year. They passed all of the legislation both for liability and for the logistics of how the autonomous trucking will work. They're in a position that January 1, 2020, on all state, U.S. and federal highways in Florida, autonomous trucking can function. <laughs> and the model is going to be kind of like, think of an air traffic control system. So the planes are out there flying, you know, at 30,000 feet, but as they get close to the city, there's an air traffic controller that takes, you know, you know uh, command or instructions of so many planes and see them that they land. Same model is going to be happening in Florida in Central Florida or wherever, wherever there'll be a command center. And when you deploy an autonomous truck, it'll be registered and handed off to 
uh, this control center and they'll see all the way to its conclusion. It might have 10 or 20 trucks that it's, uh, that it's overseeing. And they've already determined if it goes rogue and kills a family in Disney, they've already got the price tag for you know, what the cat was worth, the dog was worth, the kids, they've, they've got it all done. It's all already defined. Ooh, that's scary. <laughs> I, I can think about driving down the turnpike and a, and a, a tractor trailer pulls, me, pulls in front of me or does something I don't like, and I want to give him my favorite hand gesture, whatever that might be. I look up and there's no one there. <laughs> like, that, that control will say smile, we're sending you a ticket. <laughs> but here's the really good news about that. Autonomous trucks don't mind driving in the middle of the night in rain or at inclement weather. So one of the advantages is we're probably gonna see this truck traffic move off of our peak daytime levels mm -hmm. and into off-peak levels because the truck driver's not gonna fall asleep, doesn't need to stop at a truck stop and get caffeine. It's, the robot keeps going. Yeah. So you're optimistic, uh, I guess, conservatively optimistic, but you're optimistic about commercial real estate moving forward, right? I'm, so, I'm solidly optimistic. Solidly, I like that. Okay, better. So, what about REITs then? Because you know, sometimes they, they they kind of behave differently. Yeah. So we saw this last year. So, unfortunately, we have these robots to figure out how to trade things in Wall Street. And so last last December, when the Fed did its fourth rate hike, the robots were programmed that when interest rates go up and the Fed hikes, what do you do to REITs? You sell them, and they tanked them. The fundamental of the REIT didn't change. Good quality asset. Most of them on triple net leases. Uh, you know, inflation protected, good locations, none of those fundamentals changed. So what happened when the Fed started cutting rates again this year? All of them came back more than what they lost and have come back. Here's what's driving REITs today. It's a yield play. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at the rest of the world, negative interest bonds, you look at the stock market, maybe a two, two and a half percent dividend, and you look at a REIT with a four plus dividend in these solid assets, it's a, it's a yield play with very solid, secure asset underpinning it. And I think that's the fundamental REIT and none of that's going away. So you think in 2020 they do well? Absolutely, I think they're on a, this is a, a nice sweet spot and I don't see the Fed coming back into a rate hiking mode and if they decide that they need to do more to offset the negative yielding bonds in the rest of the world, that's only gonna benefit the REITs further. Okay, well, let's think about opportunities. Um, AC out there in the commercial real estate world, uh, maybe in various sectors or maybe parts of the world or, or parts of the country. Um, what are some opportunities that we might want to think about? Yes, yeah, so I'll start with geography. I, I travel all over the country. I do about 80 trips a year. And a couple of my most recent ones, were those are out west of your viewers, Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. I'll just say, oh my God, <laughs> what an incredible market. New airport, uh, they're right-sized. Uh, they're a vacuum before it gets to Austin. They intercede, you know, as a filter. The tech companies coming out of California. Really everything going right. Affordability in housing, affordability in labor. They're also sucking out of Colorado. Because what's happening is there's a, there's a backlash to the cannabis effect in Colorado. So if you're in the transportation, transportation maintenance industry, you have a lot of companies packing up out of Denver and moving into Salt Lake because they can't deal with the random drug test from the cannabis thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so affordability is a big part. So I look at markets where they have the affordability, low tax, um, and the workforce. So Texas is in there, Florida's in there, Tennessee's in there. Uh, we here in the Southeast, we have a great workforce, great university, so we're minting a lot of that workforce that we need. We have comparatively low tax rates, um, so we have a, go a proactive pro-business environment, so I'm very optimistic there. So earlier when I joked about Flexit, I'm worried about the West Coast and I'm worried about the Northeast because literally you just sit here in the South and you just watch the vacuuming occurring out of the Northeast. Mm -hmm. It's high tax, not pro-business, not low cost. Um, it's got a real problem, and I think the same um, you know, is, is in, in, 
is present in, in the West Coast California market. So mm -hmm. geography, I'm optimistic on that. On property types, I'm very optimistic on housing. And I'm particularly thinking that we can do it on affordable housing. Um, it's going to be more infill. It's going to be more innovative. Things like new subdivisions where all the homes are for rent. Mm -hmm. The ones that are happening, like this all-American homes example I use, so they're going in and picking up just really bizarre strips of land mm -hmm. that you wouldn't think about. You know, a big public builder wouldn't want that because they couldn't have a nice monumented entrance and all. Mm -hmm. um, and amenities, they don't need it. They're trying to get single-family housing at an affordable level in good school districts. So they'll take a meandering sliver of land and put the housing up there. They're building these things for 180000 bucks mm -hmm. and renting them for $2,400. The model works. Mm -hmm. Tiny house subdivisions, manufactured home communities, where we've got manufacturing deploying. I've been a big proponent over at the University of Alabama. We have a lot of manufacturing jobs coming in. Mm -hmm. We have Airbus down at the port and Walmart's distribution. We have Mercedes. We have Toyota Mazda coming in. Mercedes is adding a new electric vehicle plant. So we have all these manufacturing jobs coming in and we don't have the housing. And so a manufactured home community, these things aren't what they used to be 50 years ago. Believe it or not, that's not where tornadoes land. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all that gets reported. But they're affordable. You can build turnkey a manufactured home community with a you know nice house, um, uh, with the land and everything else for about 90,000. Compare that to a single family stick built apartment. It's over 200,000 a day. So I can deliver two affordable multifamily housing units in a manufactured home community to the one stick-built multifamily house. So those are the type of solutions I think we're going to see in housing. And something like Green Street, Green Street does a good tracking of the commercial property price index, 20% annual returns on manufactured home communities. Can't build it, not in my backyard, great returns. So that's where I see the opportunity in housing. And single family will chug along, but it's going to be around a million one, million two units, not a million five to a million seven. Yeah. Um, office, not a lot of spec. Um, we're going to digest some of the WeWork stuff. Um, we're going to be retrofitting a lot of older, and we're going to see work going into grid location retail. So instead of building a new office building, we might find, like at Emory University, instead of building a new office building, they go to North Lake Mall. Mm -hmm. We'll see some of that. Pittsburgh is a great example of a mall up there where the former Macy's, Seedman's, is moving their technology group into about two-thirds of the former Macy's, and the other third is going to be an incubator a charter school. So we're seeing lots of good solutions on office, but it's not all going to be in your you know, new vertical tower. You know, Retail, I think it's small as a new big. It's adaptive reuse. It's in places where you, it's aligning with services, less experiential and less services. Hospitality, medical, airports. Look what's going on, say, in the Denver airport, the Atlanta airport. Uh, if you hadn't flown to Minneapolis recently, oh my gosh, Minneapolis is like three malls and oh yeah, by the way, they launched a few planes out of there. It's mm -hmm. probably adopted retail in, in air travel better than anybody out there in the country. In industrial, we've talked a lot about it. It's from the last mile delivery, it could be a retail, it could be a drugstore, uh, could be something adaptive reuse in a, in a mall or a big box, to the, the big mega, you know, million square foot distribution centers that are the new department store. So, and in the hospitality, I think the opportunity in hospitality, it's still, it's still going fine. The business traveler is healthy. Companies are healthy. Look at those earnings. They're still sending people on travel. And a lot of those travelers now are going to be able to buy retail in the, in the hotel store, and hotels cut those costs. So I'm, I'm just looking for the bad news. I can't find it. <laughs> and that's good. That's a good way to end it. I like ended it on good news. <laughs> Casey, you. thanks for being with appreciate us. Appreciate it. And thank you for joining us around the country or around the world. We appreciate uh, you sharing the show and commenting. And uh, connect with us, if you will, on your favorite social media. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show.
America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies, incredible training for commercial agents. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com.